have thought it best to send the Night Watchman out. The crowd want to cheer Ricky Pulling. Welcome to the Night Watchman podcast. I'm John Hotton. We tend to take the concept of the tour for granted, yet is it not one of cricket's strangest phenomena? Devised on Victorian timescales of months at sea, followed by a lengthy navigation of distant lands, the notion feels increasingly at odds with modern life. So bound up is cricket with travel that the centrally contracted England player will spend no more than a couple of months each year in his own bed, producing a carbon footprint more like Orwell's boots stamping on a human face forever. And yet the tour offers the game much of its romance, its exoticism, its thrill, the variety of experience, the difference in everything from the pitches to the crowd noise, the chance to see and understand something of how the rest of the world lives and plays, offers cricket a richness that other sports don't often have. Much of the game's myth-making and camaraderie comes from being thrown together, a travelling circus of players, families, coaches, support staff and media. And one man who's had his life measured out in such a way, Shield Berry, one of the game's foremost writers for many decades, the Telegraph's chief cricket correspondent and a former editor of Wisden Almanac. His new book, Beyond the Boundaries, has the tour at its centre, taking the reader to each of the major test-playing nations. It's a wonderful prism through which to see the game's history, both good and bad, and reflect on a life that will probably drive many of us mad with jealousy. Um, Shield, we're speaking just as an Ashes series gets underway, and yet you're in Bristol rather than Brisbane. How does that feel? Um, Not too bad at all, actually. Um, I know the... um, the four, the, the four great pleasures in life, aren't there? Uh, one is leaving the English winter. Um, the second is uh, playing or watching cricket abroad. Uh, and the third is boogie boarding or bodyboarding. Uh, and <laughs> being a cricket journalist, you can do three of those. Um, the, the fourth um, great pleasure in life, I suppose, is self-evident, uh, but not necessarily <laughs> part of the job as a cricketer. So, yeah, I've had the most uh, wonderfully fortunate life but um, I suppose, I mean, it's not, in a sense, um, being there, I've done it. I've, I've done, the, I think, 11 Ashes tours of Australia. Um, and if the 12th is to be done in COVID and uh, nobody's uh, had gone and done the um, quarantine of a fortnight in Brisbane, uh, or very, very few, uh, I think only two or three, Correspondence yeah. from outside Queensland, Queensland actually going to be at the Gabba. Um, so, you know, when the first ball's bowled at, uh, of the series, I shall have a little itch to be there, but um, not an overwhelming one. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, but will, do you think you'll have the stamina to stay up all night? No. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no. I'm, I'm a lark, no. so I'll, I'll be setting my body clock uh, for getting up early and then uh, catching up during the day um, rather yeah. than um, I mean there's a lot of rain around isn't there so you could sort of stay up till midnight and still not see anything for S- several see nothing, hours yeah yeah I, I touched on in the introduction this this kind of the notion of the tour as a as a as a throwback to the game's origins really the, the you know the going in Victorian times and I suppose that that especially in your first tours, that would have been something that was very evident. The tour was was a was a sort of one stop, one country thing that went on for several months. Showing the flag, waving the flag, wasn't yes. it? That was a, that was um, uh, an important part of it. Seeing and being seen, um, yeah, it's gone from that, hasn't it? Until now. Is it uh, a business trip or almost entirely so um, with every day sort of mapped out uh, in advance? Yeah, I can remember um, <laughs> my first tour of Pakistan, 1977. Uh, the itinerary just left day after day um, for no games at all. You know, nobody bothered practice. You know, you just sat around the hotel or only yeah. Jeffrey Boycott went off and practiced. Um, and you know, every minute wasn't mapped out. It was so it was under sort of players, media. You know, shall we have a, a clock golf, mini golf competition in the hotel grounds or something, or um, improvise a club game? Um, so yeah, I, I was very lucky at the start when it was still um, a, a leisure activity, a pastime, 
Um, and now, you know, it is, I suppose, almost a business trip. Well, it's interesting that you, you say it was, you, you almost looked on it as a leisure activity when you started. Could you kind of paint a picture for those of us that haven't done it of what, what it was like in those days, what the relationships were like between the touring party of players, the touring party of press, how many people were there, what sort of thing would happen day to day? Um, okay, one of the uh, probably unknown names in the history of cricket is George Wareham Travel. Um, but they were the travel <laughs> agents who used to do uh, England tours or MCC tours, as it was um, originally, um, and the media as well. Um, and um, you know, whether it's on the grounds of economy or convenience or anything else, um, you know, you arrived at a, an airport in Lahore or Karachi on my first tour, and uh, you got on a bus uh, which George Wareham had hired, you know, both for the players and for for the media. Um, so um, it was not like that on match days because obviously the players wanted to get the ground much earlier than the media did. But, you know, for, for travelling around the country, that was the way it was done. Um, so there's me, aged 23. Um, every journalist is at least twice my age. Um, well, some of the players are my age. Um, so, you know, it's, it's natural to gravitate um, towards um, people like sort of Paul Downton and Phil Edmonds um, as, as towards oh, yeah. the towards media. Um, and, you know, that wasn't sort of selling one's companions down the river. There was no you know, real division. So you just sort of mingled with whom you wanted to, your, your contemporaries. Yeah, no, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, I think people now are aware of the media age and how media trained the players are and so on and so forth. Whereas you're describing a very different relationship between writers and players. How did that, how did that work? How did you learn the rules of that? Um, well, that was how I began. And then um, I started to bowl in the England nets um, uh, I, 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 I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Uh, it, it wouldn't be against um, the top order batsmen. <laughs> it would be those lower down the order. Um, and I can imagine. Uh, I can remember uh, the second test of the series, a place called played in Hyderabad, Sindh, um, not Hyderabad, Deccan, the one in India, but the one in Pakistan. Yeah. And um, uh, it wasn't very difficult to get the ball to turn because the um, the outfield. Uh, it was incredible. Half of it was green as, as normal, and the other half was sand. Um, <laughs> and um, you know, with, with almost no grass on it at all. Um, so the nets um, for an aspiring, shall we say, or or, or filthy leg spinner, um, you know, you you turned it quite a bit. Um, so I remember um, bowling a bit there in the nets. Um, Do you remember your then, first wicket? Well, I wouldn't like to drop any names, but um, I managed oh, to get. Oh come on! <laughs> um, I managed to get um, somebody who was keeping wicket for England, uh, and is now the director of cricket at Kent. Uh, <laughs> bless Paul Downton um, for getting out twice and three balls in the nets. Um, but it, but it was it was ragging. Um, yeah, and then yeah. uh, I, I suppose, um, uh, well, what happened was uh, one of the um, cricket journalists um, came over uh, a few days later and said, um, we're not stopping you playing in the, in the nets. We're not, we're not, we're not um, telling you that you should stop. Um, and... Um, the implication was that they would much prefer it if I didn't because it was an unfair <laughs> advantage. So, uh, I, I, I didn't, I didn't sort of really see it as that because I was um, a Sunday correspondent. Um, yes. So, so only some one day a week was it worth um, mixing in. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they, they were dailies. Uh, but there was some uh, feeling expressed that um, I shouldn't do it. 
Right, right. Um, so you, but it's 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 really interesting, isn't it? That the 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 barriers were so porous between players and and writers. Were you conscious yeah, it was wonderful. of that when, when you when you did? I know, but when you did start actually sitting down to write, were you conscious of that? And was there ever any element of self censorship? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, there's a big difference between uh, being a daily and a Sunday. Um, you know, you can sort of write round things on a, on a Sunday if you don't have to sort of bang away on a line and length every day. Uh, but yeah, I did learn the lesson that not to get too close. Um, uh, one's ultimate loyalty as a journalist is to one's readers. Um, and if you've befriended players to the extent that, yeah, you can't write about them um, objectively, and um, say everything that needs to be said, then you are letting down your readers who are paying your, your daily wage. Yeah, yeah. But there, there's also, I suppose, the notion that you're somewhat captive on a tour, aren't you? It's not as if you can kind of uh, get out of the way of one another. You're all going to end up certainly at the same games all the time. So were the players kind of reading what was written about them as it happened, as it got sent over to them? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I remember in those days, I mean, it took several days, but um, yeah. uh, just speaking, because uh, I was a correspondent for the Observer then, uh, there'll be a, a copy lying around the England dressing room sort of four <laughs> or five days later, um, you know, they'd the, the somehow uh, get out, um, maybe through the uh, High Commission in that country or yeah, um, yeah. I don't know, but that was, um, so yeah, I mean, players... Uh, didn't sort of pick up the local paper the next day and read what had been said about them uh, in 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 the, in the London papers, but you know it filtered through uh, sort of a few days later. Um, if you'd slagged anybody off or um, <laughs> or not. <laughs> yeah, but I mean it must have been horror, you know, seeing their hand move towards the paper. You're thinking, oh God, please don't pick that up. <laughs> but, but I suppose that the. the uh, the idea that I've always had is that the relationship began to change when the, the front pages of the newspapers got involved. I mean, probably if you were to route it to one time, people tend to talk a lot about um, Ian Botham in the West Indies when the story broke about the Miss World and the broken bed and all that sort of thing. Um, and then the relationship kind of began to, to shift. Is that something you'd say is, is true and is fair to say? Yes, uh, I think the in both mirror saw the um, the rendering asunder of the relationship between uh, press and players. Um, it was well in the days of George Wareham travel. It was one party, um, and uh, as the um, the split grew, um, it became them and us. Um, I don't think it was helped by um, the in both them. Starting with the mirror and then joining the sun and then going back to the mirror, that sort right. of um, probably increased the uh, the uh, the heat that was generated uh, in the media uh, around him. But um, yeah, he he was the the central figure. Now it's moved back, um, and uh, you you always have a a bit more of a relationship with a uh, with a player if you're ghosting him. Yeah. Um, uh, but I think the uh, the ultimate uh, lesson of the story, John, is that um, uh, uh, players never really um, regard journalists as equals and friends. They are friendly, especially if the journalist is ghosting. Uh, but you're, ne you're never really one of us. Yeah, yeah. But it but it seemed to be that, I mean, especially around both of them, because he was the, you know, I suppose really only maybe him and Boycott were the kind of England players who would find themselves on the front page of a newspaper, mm. um, that that really seemed to be the dividing line. It was, um, you know, their, their personal lives that you might have seen a little bit of on tour in the past, all of a sudden became fair game. And you had a different style of writing about them. Were you? Were the journalists ever kind of pressured by by editors back in London to get certain kinds of stories? Oh, I'm sure, um, but I, I, I never had any personal experience of it myself. Um, mm. But yeah, yeah you, you sort of overhear uh, somebody on the phone, and the, the, the sports editor 
um, was telling them uh, what they wanted and the, the, the tail wagged the dog. It didn't matter what yeah. the correspondent saw on the ground. Um, it was what the office wanted. Um, and um, yeah, tail wagging dog. Yeah. Now, the I suppose what 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 one thing we all kind of know about tours is that they when they they they're sort of unexpected when they start, and and a lot of the time no one really knows what's going to happen. But they quite often gather a strange kind of momentum, either good or bad, um, in terms of what's happening on the field, and sh- and I'm sure in terms of what's happening off the field as well. And I wonder how you how quickly you start to sense the mood of a tour. And what it's going to be like, and how it's going to play out. <laughs> Good question. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I mean, I mean, so often uh, you know it starts well and ends in disaster, and so often it starts with <laughs> disaster and, and ends well. Yeah. Um, I suppose if one knew what the outcome of um, uh, most tours would be, one would cease to want to go on them. Um, it's the it's the unknowingness of, of it. Uh, I mean, just just thinking about the very rarely. Uh, would you say uh, uh, the outcome that you'll predict at the start is the one that ends yeah. that way? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's the unknowingness, I would think. I mean, I, I suppose one should sit down and see the outcomes or go back over one's uh, predictions and see how many actually worked out. Um, I wouldn't think all that many uh, no. No. results of series. But I mean, do you get a sense that um, that I mean, for example, the wheels have come off? Do you, when you kind of get to the end, certainly of a long tour, do you sort of have a very much a sense of what's going to happen from um, being well, closer to it? Well, most mostly so on Ash's tours. I mean, <laughs> yeah, um, I suppose that's what I was driving at. Yes. Yeah, I mean, every time that England lose a Test series in Australia, um, it's the end of the road for someone. Uh, you know, whether the captain or, or the the manager or, or whatever, or a, a famous player, um, and I'm really glad that um, cycle stopped last time. I, th- I think it was uh, unnecessary bloodshed. Um, it was, you know, the press, maybe the sports editor back out rather than the correspondent, demanding that heads should roll. England have lost five nil or four one or whatever, um, and uh, heads must roll. Uh, that was pleasant to watch. Um, uh, you know, India would, you know, 10 years ago would go to uh, Australia and lose, you know, four test series, four nil and go back home and nothing would change. You know, yeah. the next few tests yeah. at home, yeah. just carry on. Um, and I think that was far more sensible way to go about it. Um, so uh, I, was, I was pleased to see that last time, um, you know, heads did not roll, people carried on. It was an element of continuity instead of the bloodletting uh, that had often taken place at the end of Ashes tours. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's also a notion that the the tour is a place where kind of great stories and great characters emerge. I mean, there's the you know, if you were picking out the famous moments, you you pick you know Gower and his tiger moth or um, Gooch having a bus stop on the field with him. You know, those kind of these kind of offbeat things that happen on tours and tend to be the things that end up sticking in our minds about them. And I wonder when you're when you're out there, if you're aware of this kind of mood and this, the, you know, this sort of feeling that anything can happen, really. Well, there's no greater stress upon an England cricketer. And you could possibly say there's no greater stress upon any um, team sportsman um, than being in a losing England side in Australia uh, because it goes on or it used to, you know, three or four months in the old days, if only sort of six weeks now. Um, there's no light relief by going to Tasmania for a warm-up <laughs> game. Yeah. Um, yeah. That used to be a place where you'd lick your wounds, you know, in Launceston and Hobart. You know, that was, that was English countryside, a home from home. Yeah. Um, so no light relief there. Um, players were um, um, uh, well um, I, I would say just overall the, the, the stress then particularly of those in leadership roles you know the England captain uh, towards the end of a losing tour of Australia was was the greatest stress um, that um, team sportsmen ever come under I mean I can remember I forget which a, a boxing day um, sorry, Christmas Day, Alistair Cook, it was his 
His birthday is on Christmas Day, isn't it? Yes, it is, um, yes. He was 3 nil down in the series. <laughs> and, you know, the worry lines in his face. I mean, absolute anguish and, um, you know, n- nearing end of tether. You just don't want any human being, let alone sportsman, to be just look so stressed out as that. Um, but he was, you know, 3 nil down. Um, in, in the series. So um, the, those tours of Australia um, tend to bring out the most stark, um, certainly the most stressful moments um, in a player's career. Um, maybe for that reason, they, 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 they stick in the memory. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, uh, because I suppose, you know, we, we we have today spoken quite a lot about Australia, and that tends to be the tour we all think of. But perhaps the most remarkable thing that happens over the course of your book, certainly, is the emergence of India as the new powerhouse of the game. Um, and I wonder if you could reflect on that a little bit, really, and what changes you've seen in India over the course of the times that you've been going there. What changes? Um, well, I suppose um, the big day, wasn't it? it? Was a not in India, but at Lords in 1983. Yeah. When um, uh, uh, India only made 180 odd, didn't they? And then West is cruising at about 70 for one, and uh, Viv clips it uh, leg side. Uh, yeah, I can see Capil um, running from yeah. uh, behind square leg. Um, uh, in front of the wicket and catching Viv. Um, I suppose that's the sort of the single <laughs> biggest moment in the history of in, Indian cricket um, because, you know, um, limited overs cricket then took off. Um, I think it has to be said that test cricket was going through a particularly um, uh, dull phase uh, in the early 80s. Um, you know, India winning uh, six test series, you know, one nil. Yes. Um, and so the time was ripe for um, something different in cricket. And yeah, when, when India won at Lords in, in 83, um, you know, it, it was the equivalent of Pandora's box opening, wasn't it? Uh, the, uh, the enormous potential of limited overs cricket, the enormous potential of India. Similarly, began to flood the market, and the old order whereby England and Australia just controlled the game and kept it, I'm afraid, pretty much amongst themselves. They didn't go out of their way, did they, to um, convert um, (laughs) and missionary activity around the world? Um, But so, yeah, when India took over, um, the globalization of of cricket was launched, uh, and and as well as the monetization. And you have to say, you know, all things all, it's, it's been for the better. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's, I suppose it's this sort of extraordinary sense of confidence that's come along. I mean, you can't imagine them having a, a cricketer like Virat Kohli 30 years ago. Um, you know, it's just an extraordinary transformation in a, in a country, really, isn't it, in terms of the infrastructure and everything. It's a, it must have been a remarkable thing to, to think about your first tours there compared to, compared to now. Um, Sunil Gavaskar was a pretty um, um, confirmed in his uh, beliefs um, and um, not um, backing down uh, when he was captain in the, in the late seventies and early eighties. Yes, um, I, suppose, I suppose. Yeah, his his sort of famous World Cup innings and so on. Yeah, mm, and the um, one he so the, the two hundred. So there have always been you know a, a strong men around in Indian cricket. Um, but I suppose it's this notion of stardom as well, you know, Kohli being this, uh, you know, almost symbolic of the nation. You know, it's remarkable, really. Yeah, but the, there were there were stars who were the equal of of Bollywood stars um, um, in the old days. I mean, uh, before my time, but you know, you'd uh, hear about them from people like John Woodcock. Um, the name Salim Dirani. Um, uh, he was a film star playing cricket in the sixties. Um, the um, you know Kapil Dev, you know the Haryana Hurricane. Um, these were as big in their way as um, the Indian stars of today. It's just that they're probably more stars now um, because you know you've got to fill the Indian team and uh, all the all the IPL IPL teams with stars. 
Um, so I think that, you know, they've always been semi-divine Indian cricketers uh, or the, the equivalent. And, um, you know, then, then as now, but a lot more of them now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And how do you see, um, we should touch very briefly on the West Indies as well, because I think that's another tour that, you know, certainly uh, those of us that don't get to go on tour would love love to be on and love to have seen, especially in the, the era of their their dominance. Um, Are you saying, John, you also want to be a journalist on that tour? Well, no, I just, I, I just like to be taken around. You've got a deadline yeah. four or five hours behind, so um, <laughs> you, you've You've got to be filing um, at tea time for the first edition, and things yeah, can happen. Things can happen in the final session to upset the, uh, <laughs> the story. Yeah, I mean the work's not so much my scene. I'm talking more of the going around and seeing the oh, you know, the see, easy part, yeah, the grounds, <laughs> and the, yeah, the easy part, watching the cricket. Yeah. Um, oh well, you know, that, it's, you know, for for example, I mean, you know, ha- having seen Richards in Antigua, um, you yeah. know, all of the these majestic players in their home environment must have mm. been, must be something you can reflect on now and think, well, actually history is kind of showing us this won't go on forever anywhere. And actually to have seen that, you know, seen some of these things that you've seen, it, 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 you know, is, is a moment in time really. Mm. Yeah. To tour the West Indies in the 1980s when, you know, such, such were the, the scars or wounds of, um, colonization that um, beating England as the mother country um, it was so important to win for the first time you know to um, since uh, you know in independence um, that was so urgent and, and not just in the West Indies but in, in, in various parts of the Commonwealth but yeah. ha- having once West Indies had beaten England you know once twice several times, uh, then you know now um, it, it, it's it's just a, a routine run-of-the-mill event without the specialness then. But um, yes, the animation it meant so much, and um, the cricketers who who accomplished it. Yeah, I mean to see uh, Viv Richards simply walking off the field after scoring the fastest Test hundred of all time, as it was yeah, as it yeah. was then in in terms of balls or. Mikey Holding running around the boundary at Sabina Park, just telescoping out his right hand, jumping in midair and throwing the ball, twisting and throwing the ball in almost the opposite direction from which he'd come, straight over the top of the bales to Dujon. Yeah. I mean, the adoration of the people, never mind the press box, um, uh, yeah, I mean, just unique moments and I'm just so privileged to have been able to see them. I mean, you you touched on something interesting there about the, you know, the, the nature of colonisation and and really the you know the history of cricket being the the history of empire, and I suppose touring with England brings that home more than with any any other country. Mm-hmm. It's actually this, this it's almost global desire to stick it to you. Um, do you think the players always had that in mind? Um, I, I'm afraid afraid you'd have to ask them. Um, the uh, the thing is that there was a phenomenon then which does not exist now. I mean, beating England in any part of the world has become sort of so routine that I don't think there's any. <laughs> I don't think there's been any uh, special kudos now attached to it. Um, in a way, it's nice that we've all moved on and adjusted to a, a post-colonial era. And that the you know England players don't have to be targeted um, as representatives of, of of the empire that they can just be the, the, their own selves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as a final question, and I was really very very glad to see in your book. I think it's a full page picture of you bowling playing. <coughs> and, Thank you, and, and uh, it was the publisher. It was it was the yeah, publisher who insisted. Maybe yeah, no, I'm sorry. But you, but you see, I, I think this is important. And I think this is really interesting in talking to people who write about cricket and their own relationship with the game and how important it is to have played the game yourself, even if only at a club level. And I wondered if, if you reflect on that and, and the fact that the, you do play the game has influenced the way you look at the game uh, when you come to write about it. I think it is valuable to know just how hard and how 
blankety blankety cruel the, the <laughs> yeah. sport is um and um i suppose yeah i mean just remember how humiliating the game is um and i think that lesson uh is absorbable uh, at every level from you know me playing a grassroots game to um the, the test match bats from being dismissed for naught first ball I mean, just to bear in mind um, the sort of the human element of it. Um, you know, you can, if you haven't played, you might say, oh, he should have hit that one. But if you yourself have um, missed a ball the previous weekend, um, you're less likely uh, to condemn and to um, understand how it's possible. The Night Watchman podcast is brought to you by Rathbone's Investment Management. For individuals, charities and financial advisors. We couldn't do it without them, so please head over to rathbones.com to find out more about what they do. For the second half of this podcast, I wanted to focus on just one tour to drill down a little into the wider significance they can sometimes assume. Like S.H.I.E.L.D., writer David Woodhouse has co-opted a little of C.L.R. James for the title of his book, Who Only Cricket Know. In David's case, it's perhaps even more appropriate England's tour of West Indies in 1953-4 is a tour that, to my shame, I didn't know an awful lot about until I read the book. And what a story it is, beautifully told, full of telling detail. Uh, Len Hutton, who became the first professional to captain England overseas, said that the tour shortened his career by two years, to which the tour player manager, and yes, I did say player manager, Charles Palmer replied, I'm surprised he only said two. David, I probably started to answer my own question here, but if it's not too trite a place to start, why this tour? Well, um, the, the tour, I think, is often described as the, the second most controversial in cricket yes. history. Um, um, and it's a surprise, really, that no one since the, uh, at the time, two English journalists wrote books about the tour. But it comes to something of a surprise, really, that nobody has has looked at it in detail when you when you consider how much literature there is on body line. And, and so um, I was drawn to it actually by reading Len Hutton's last memoir, which I was reading for an right, entirely right. different reason. <laughs> and um, he gave a very sort of dry, the book is actually ghosted by Alex Bannister of the Daily Mail, who was on tour with him in the West Indies. Right. And he gave a very sort of dry account of, of the tour. And it just struck me that... Um, so much was going on on the pitch and off it. I mean, the, the series itself was an extraordinary series in that in England went 2 0 down. Uh, you know, we were well beaten in the first two tests. Um, they looked dead and buried. And Hutton led from the front an extraordinary comeback uh, and they drew the series 2 all. So, in itself, you know, that, that is reasonably extraordinary. Obviously, Bradman came back from 2 0 down in 36 37. But on an MCC tour, a reasonably unprecedented comeback. Yeah. And many great players graced the series. Um, George Headley, you know, one of the great, um, to use that overused word, icons of West Indian cricket, played his last test in the first test. And in the last test of the series, Gary Sobers played his first. Yeah. So there's enough going on on the field. Yeah. But then off the field, it seems to me, and actually the more I think about it, John, you know, I in the book, I think I sort of, except this second most controversial tour um, description. The more I think about it, actually, I think it probably is the most controversial MCC tour. Um, I mean, there are other candidates for it, you know, the, the one in Pakistan just before the, 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 war, the war that sort of uh, caused Bangladesh or however one would want to put that. But, you know, if you think about Bodyline, it's got three key features, I think. It's got the systematic physical intimidation of batsmen. Yeah, it's got sport, or more correctly, unsportsmanlike conduct. To use the phrase in that famous telegram, causing a diplomatic incident. And then the third thing you have is the inquest afterwards. You know, the Star Chamber at Lords, in the popular imagination, Larwood and Vose are treated worse than Jardine. To be honest, all yeah. of them eventually are, are discarded, aren't they, in, in various means? So those are the three things I think that make Bodyline so famous as a tour. Now, this tour has all three of those things. You know, uh, five batsmen were put in hospital. Admittedly, most of them 
most of them were put in hospital because of something that happened in the tour match, not not in the test matches. There was only one sort of serious injury in a test match to Jim Laker. He was cut over the eye, um, had to have about sort of 13 stitches. Um, but, you know, you've got Truman on the English side in particular and Frank King on the West Indian side peppering batsmen with bouncers. Sometimes they did that, to be fair, because uh, the fourth test in Trinidad was played on a very docile matting wicket. So in fairness to them, they had other little other option than to adopt those tactics. So you've got that there straight away. Then you've got diplomatic incidents. The most obvious one, I mean, there were telegrams back and forth between the boards of control. They weren't made as public as in the case of Borderline, but you do have a diplomatic incident when Len Hutton, who's just scored a double century in the last test match, fails to shake the hand of the Chief Minister of Jamaica, Alexander Bustamante. And that causes a, a row, I think it's fair to say, of diplomatic proportions, where sort of armed body bodyguards um, rush into the England dressing room and so on. And then in terms of the Star Chamber afterwards, um, almost exactly the same thing happens as in 1933, although there are different details. Truman is stripped of his good conduct bonus, and he doesn't tour again for five years. Trevor Bailey is stripped of the vice captaincy in a, in a sort of very interesting incident. He writes, he writes about the tour within 12 months, which you weren't allowed to do in those days. That's another right. interesting yeah. thing about yeah. touring in general. Actually, you've probably been speaking to Shield about the, the interrelation of press and player. Well, in those days, you know, players weren't technically allowed to speak to the press about a tour for 12 months. And then, of course, there's the famous attempt to unseat Hutton, to, to, to you know, an attempted coup against him led by probably by Errol Holmes and Walter Robbins, but other people like Gubby Allen were probably behind it as well, where they attempt to bring in David Shepherd for the tour of Australia. Now, that attempt fails, of course, and, and Hutton triumphs in Australia. Um, he, he, of course, lost at Brisbane um, <laughs> after putting Australia in, but then wins 3-1 with Tyson, Tyson and Staden, the sort of key, key bowlers. So I hope that's a sort of summary of why um, there are similarities with body line, but also other things. Um, and I think there are probably three or four other things on top of those things I just described. Yeah, there, there certainly are. And I mean, it, so, uh, you know, and as I mentioned, it was a tour I didn't know a huge amount about. Mm. So why is it forgot, not forgotten, but well, it is forgotten really, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't come up that yes. bit, uh, as mm. in the way that other tours you've mentioned do. And yes. certainly until now and your books, why, why yes. do you think it was forgotten? It's a good question. Um, I suppose the key question is whether it was deliberately forgotten yeah. in, the, in the sense yeah. that both we, we've got, it's an extremely interesting point in history, John, I think, you know, it has some of the classic things that you get on yeah. tour, like, yeah. like uh, controversial umpiring. So, I mean, which, you know, much more so than body line actually. So you know, that we, we can say that that is a factor in so many tours before neutral umpires and, and DRS, you know, it's all, you know, so that there's nothing distinctive about that, but it was particularly serious on that tour but I think the crucial thing is you know we are at a particular period in history where um, Britain is at last I don't know whether surrendering is the right word but you know it's just on the point of giving up its empire yeah I think in 1954 you know it was still considered that there was obviously a wide spectrum of of opinion you know I, I think I say in the book that Tony Benn has just become the treasurer of a movement for colonial freedom on the one hand, and Enoch Powell has just joined the Suez group on the other. So there's a wide spectrum of opinion there. But I think many people in Britain were expecting, obviously India is already independent, but were expecting that process of decolonialization to take another 20 years, maybe. Whereas, of course, in the Caribbean, <laughs> um, all the individual islands were very impatient to become independent. There's also the complication of do they become independent in federation or do they yeah. become independent independently? independently. If, I can, if I can use the, <laughs> the, the word, if I can repeat the word. So there's a lot going on and therefore the tour becomes a matter of, it's a matter of national prestige, but also takes on a great symbolism in the sense of those moving parts. And Hutton gets caught in those moving parts in that the, you know, the nationalist people on each island, who of course are the majority, see cricket as a way of expressing independence and showing independence from Britain. And therefore, the fact that he adopted a policy of sort of rather 
non-fraternisation and appeared rather condescending, did not go down well at all. But on the other hand, he's got the settler minorities, the white people um, on these islands, who of course are the elite, essentially, desperate for England to beat the West Indies, you know, to be, to, you know, some rather unfortunate language is used in terms of you've got to beat those coloured fellows and so on and so forth. So because of those sensitivities, maybe on both sides, there was a, an act of collective forgetting in the sense of, of course, Australians are, are in a way quite proud of body life. And although they didn't actually really get their way, I suppose they did in the sense that Larwood and Jardine didn't play in 1934. Um, <laughs> Though Larwood had some injury trouble as well, didn't he, that year? But they didn't sort of get their way immediately at the time. They can celebrate a moment where they assert their, their independence, I suppose. I mean, they were a dominion, of course, at that, at that moment. Maybe because the, the, this tour became so controversial and difficult with, you know, nasty incidents, maybe both sides chose to sort of not include it in their narrative of how both cricket and the nations themselves develop. You know, I would yeah. certainly think I would certainly think at MCC, MCC as usual, were caught in this problem that they wanted to win. They probably didn't want to win quite as badly as they did against Australia. But they didn't want to be associated with anything that smelt bad. And they were also obsessed with brighter cricket. Yeah. I, I should say, yeah. by the way, on this tour, you know, as well as non-fraternising at the start of the tour, and also adopted a very defensive policy. So the, it, um, the second test saw what was at the time the slowest day in test cricket. England scored 128 runs off 114 overs. You know, Rabadine and, <laughs> Rabadine and Valentine were doing most of the bowling. So yeah. the over rates... Imagine having a ticket for that. Yeah, yeah the, over rates, the over rates were much better, but the run rates certainly weren't. And yeah. you know, there, was, there was barracking from the schoolboys' stand and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, the schoolboys had had their... their admission fee doubled by the local board of control so they were angry anyway you know so mcc i think is slightly proud of hutton for getting a draw and also i haven't yet mentioned there was a full-scale riot in the third test in british <laughs> i think the first riot in a test match in the 20th century i think it would be fair to say and so hutton dealt with that in a, in a sort of stiff upper lip way so they liked that but they were very disappointed with the fact that MCC had not acted as ambassadors. Yeah. yeah. That, now, one thing in the book that I loved beyond all measure uh, was the character of Charles Palmer, who uh, um, you, I'll let yeah. you illuminate him. <laughs> but it, it struck me as the, the sort of thing that could only happen to the MCC and to an English cricket team, that, that this extraordinary character comes along and is mm. given this... A unprecedented role of player manager on the mm. tour. Uh, yeah. Give us a little bit about Charles Palmer and give us a bit of the background and tell us a bit about the extraordinary job that he ends up doing on this yes. tour. Yes. I, don't, I personally don't think he's as fascinating a character as Hutton, but it is a fascinating situation, yeah. which is partly driven, in fairness, by the fact that the Board of Control, excuse me, the Board of Control in the West Indies set the budget. So they underwrote the tour. Right. So that there were budgetary reasons for a player manager. There had, in fact, been a, been a player manager on the previous tour of the West Indies led by Gabby Allen in the shape of Billy Griffith. And indeed, Hutton wanted Griffith on this tour. He, he was now assistant secretary at Lords and wasn't allowed to go. But I think it's the, the amateur professional thing that causes the selection of Palmer. Yeah. In that Hutton, um, as I don't think we've yet actually made clear to the listeners, is, is the first professional captain of an MCC tour. So again, this period thing is very interesting, not only from the point of view of race, in the sense we're on the path in the West Indies to there being a black captain. You know, Frank Worrell becomes the first black captain with tenure in 1960. George Headley had captained one test in 1948. But, you know, we're on that path. Similarly, Hutton is on this lonely pioneering journey as the professional captain of of first England at home and now of MCC. And there were some people in MCC who thought perhaps it wasn't right for a professional to be captain on tour. You know, I suppose cricket is often compared to um, a war, isn't it? And there is that analogy in, in this tour, but also cricket is a religion. You know, the idea of MCC as missionaries spreading the yes. you know, civilising mission. 
So I think there were elements in MCC who didn't want Hutton to be captain. And indeed, if you look at the minutes of the early meetings, they made an assumption that the captain would be an amateur. My personal feeling, although I can't absolutely prove it, is they wanted David Shepard to lead that tour. But David Shepard was just about to embark on a, a course for the ministry. So he made himself unavailable. Like I haven't seen the, you know, the moment when he does that. I think it's when Shepard becomes unavailable that they decide they're going to put up with Hutton. But of course, then they need a chaperone. Hutton had already been chaperoned in the ashes that uh, <laughs> summer. They, they brought Freddie, Freddie Brown, who was chairman of selectors at home, selected himself for the second test. That's so you've got this extraordinary, <laughs> extraordinary situation where uh, I think yeah. um, someone someone compared Hutton's position to being sort of a, a member of middle management on whom the chairman has dropped in to see how he copes with the meeting. Yeah. You know, and I think Palmer was the same kind of thing on tour. They wanted to have an amateur there just to sort of look after things. And I suppose Hutton always had to factor in the possibility that if something went badly wrong, you know, Palmer might take over as captain. So this player-manager sort of compromise happens partly, as I say, because of the precedent of, of budgeting in the West Indies, but also so they can have an amateur kind of at the helm, as it were. And as you say, Palmer, um, you know, an essentially very decent man, I think, developed a good relationship with Hutton, although there were some issues in the dynamics of their relationship, I think. I mean, Hutton didn't rate Palmer as a player. I think that's <laughs> no. certainly true. Yeah. Well, although, it's, it's, it's fair to say, isn't it, is up until 1950, he'd been a schoolmaster. That's right. He, he, I think, I always get slightly confused because I think he went to school at Hales-Owen Grammar School, but I think he was a teacher at Bromsgrove Grammar School. Right. And so he'd almost decided to give up cricket. He played for Worcestershire before the war. Um, and, he, and indeed, after the war, he, he came to sort of prominence when he scored um, an innings of about 80 against Bradman's Invincibles in 1948. He went on a tour of South Africa, but didn't play a test. And, but he, he'd sort of really come back into the inner circle of the MCC's mind for two reasons. Number one, he scored a sparkling century for the gentlemen against the players, which for people like Pelham mm -hmm. Warner is always yeah. a, a sort of feather in your cap. <laughs> um, in the same way, Robin Marler, by the way, nearly went on this tour because he actually took the gentlemen to victory in, really? in the 1953 yeah. game. Yeah. The gentlemen versus players game in those days, of course, it, it, it stops in 1963, a decade later. Yeah. But in those days, it was considered to be sort of one of the main test trials or tour trials. It happened in the sort of middle of the season and the selectors met during that game. And Pelham Warner, to whom that match was particularly important, was the chairman of selectors for this tour, despite the fact he was 80. And they say he and Hutton have a quite an interesting dynamic because Warner remembers body line. He's worried about someone like Truman bowling bounce, too many bounces and so on and so forth. But Warner took a shine to Palmer for that reason. And also, as you say, Palmer was persuaded to come back into county cricket and in fact, the MCC rushed through his registration and he was captain secretary of Leicestershire. Now, that was quite a prevalent sort of role at that time yeah. to keep amateurs in the game. And he was perceived to be, I mean, he took Leicestershire to unparalleled heights. I mean, he was a, a, an intelligent and dynamic captain. And of course, MCC loved that sort of thing because brighter cricket was an obsession with them at the time. Um, I think Leary continues for like, like more than a decade, doesn't well, it? Well, indeed, the notion of brighter cricket. Yeah, I, I suppose yeah. until one day cricket arrives. Yeah, um, which again is 1963. 1963 is is you know one of those. I think you've mentioned in your writing the way there are certain years where everything seems to cluster together. Yeah, you know yeah. where the you know um, Grace dies the same year as other things happen. And, yeah, that's but, right. And, yeah. 1963 is another one, isn't it? Because you have Worrell triumphing in England as the captain of West Indies, the first Wisden trophy. It's the 100th anniversary of Wisden. CLR James publishes Beyond a Boundary. And, you know, um, as well as, there's that Larkin poem about sexual intercourse. Yeah, beginning yeah. In 1963, yeah. yeah. So sexual intercourse began, but so did the direct cup. <laughs> you know, uh, and it wasn't actually called the Gillette Cup in its very yeah. first year. It was called the Knockout yeah. Cup, but Gillette yes, sponsored right. it yeah. from, the, from the year on. So, yeah. you know, Lots of things are happening then. And until one day cricket comes in, I think, the MCC is particularly obsessed about brighter cricket because the attendances are going down in the 1950s. They worry that the... 
they almost worry more about the county game than a test game, in fact. Yeah, they do, so, yeah, yeah. So Palmer, uh, is a, Palmer is a man who is sort of leading from the front, playing bright stuff. Leicestershire were actually on top of the county championship at, at one stage that summer. Uh, David Shepherd Sussex were also involved in this massive fight for the title, yeah. which, of course, eventually was won by Surrey. <laughs> um, um, so all of that's going on. Um, and Palmer, therefore, is selected. And as I say, he then, I think um, uh, there's a quote which I can't quite remember, but about, you know, I, I didn't know where the next arrow was coming from. All I knew was that it was coming. Yeah, and he, that's he, just right, has, yeah. he just has to deal with incident after incident. You know, part, part, some of them are on the pitch in terms of umpiring. Uh, the, the English got very upset about the fact that an umpire was allegedly assaulted in the first test for giving a Jamaican batsman out. And then um, Clyde Walcott's uncle, Harold, um, nobles Tony Locke for throwing. So the English are getting very upset about that. So, so he's constantly in talks about that sort of thing. Then the umpires are replaced in British Guyana after the tour match. So Palmer has a lot, has to deal with that. He has to deal with some bad behaviour by the players. Tom Graven, he was nearly sent home for swearing at a, at a function where the Royal Navy were attending and so on. The young tyros, Truman and Locke, who, must, for some reason, probably to get their juices played, were put in the same room, yeah. you know, persistently got themselves into trouble on their first tour for swearing at people or chatting people up at cocktail parties when they shouldn't and all that sort of thing. So he had all that to deal with. And then, of course, he had these other sort of, in inverted commas, diplomatic incidents when um, politicians got involved. So, you know, it was certainly no sinecure of Palmer's job as player manager. He didn't, of course, get much playing time no, no. Um, as a result of no. all this. Although mysteriously, he did get selected for the second test, which really upset the younger players on tour. Because, you know, they felt that there was no way... First of all, he hadn't had much cricket. And yeah. secondly, they felt he really shouldn't have been in the team. And he, he Hutton didn't bowl him until, the, you know, I think England had bowled about 250 overs. So it was very strange that he played a test match but he played his only test match on this tour now, now the other thing I wanted to touch on really briefly was um, what you mentioned what was going on off the field and what seemed to be going on a lot of the time which you've mentioned are these endless parties and functions mm. that the players yeah. were, were taken to yes. a lot of the time with the with the the white elite in the West Indies yes. who were urging the England team on against the West Indies, yeah. which is extraordinary. And it's an extraordinary dynamic. And then you think, well, you're throwing in someone like Fred Truman, very young, just out of a Yorkshire Absolutely. Pit, pit village, into the middle of this incredibly quite complex social dynamics. Yeah, It's part farce. It's part tragedy, isn't it? It's an astonishing mm. thing that's going on there. And I presume that when you were writing, uh, you were almost writing against a backdrop of... When were you writing? Maybe 2020 were you writing this? Against the backdrop of holding coming out and starting to yes. talk about, you know. Well, so you had another dynamic to take yes. into account in your own thinking and your own writing. Yes. And I wonder how much that reflected on yes. what you were actually doing. I think you put it very well, John, sort of tragedy and farce. Actually, the book took me a long time to write. So I'd, I'd written most of it by the time, you know, Michael Holding made that wonderful statement very reminiscent, incidentally, of things Leary Constantine was were doing in 1954. In 1954, yeah. just after Hutton had come back, um, Constantine published a book called Colour Bar, which in many ways, if you take away, you know, period details, is almost exactly the same book as Michael Holding's just written. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, have things changed really that much? So the book became, I think, more, my book became more relevant than I expected it to be, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. And although I did bring some of that in towards the end of my writing, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd already done most of it by then. But yes, you're absolutely right that, uh, you know, in, in terms of that relevance. Now, when we come to the, 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 the white settlers, and the, there were two sort of groups of whites, I suppose, in... Oh, sorry, excuse me. That's all right. We can cut that, don't worry. Yeah, sorry about that. No, that's my, all right. Um, so, shall I just start the bit where I? Yeah, just go back to the just, white settlers. Yeah, bit. if you yeah. could just start that uh, for that uh, trailer thought again, uh, David, that'd be yeah. great. Apologies for that. I've, no, I've no worries. Turn my phone off, but my it's too close to my. I tell you what, I'm just going to move my phone so that doesn't happen again. No worries, John. John, uh, to uh, to rat you out as well. I think I heard your text go off because I think yeah, it, it did, I got but, uh, I got the text at the same time. 
Oh, did you? Oh, it's probably the author's group. Isn't it? Yeah, it's always pinging. I've but don't worry, yours is. I've kept my quite, phone further away. I can. I've. I, I've taken out a few bleeps at, from these, so yeah. um, that's all good. Sorry about that. The dog nope. is also barking upstairs. But anyway, <laughs> okay. Um, my children are homeschooling because of the, you know they've been. Oh, they're very, back. They're off again. It's, it's all hell. all all go in this household this morning. But anyway, mm. right. So yes. So we'll we'll just start with those white settlers again. Yes. Go back so, in on that. Yeah. So so to come to the the white settlers the the. Well, there are actually two groups in, in the British West Indies, as it was then called. You've got the, the people who've lived there for generations, who settled there as, as, as originally as sugar planters, and you've still got a lot of British civil servants and the British military. Uh, in one case, in British Guyana, the British military are actually enforcing a state of emergency during this tour. Um, now, I think some of them would have actually passed the Tebbit test, you know, for example, Jeff Stolmeyer, the captain of the West Indies, still had, there was an unwritten rule they still had to be white. So the yeah. captain was Jeff Stolmeyer. And I think his family, which is a very interesting family with, with conservative and enlightened elements in it, would definitely have supported the West Indies, you know, through thick and thin. And there were lots of people like him, to be fair. But I think on the other side of the ledger, it's also fair to say that there was an element of the white settler community who were absolutely desperate that. Um, a team which was largely non-white at this stage would not beat England. You know, they, they, in fact, one of them, I think, said to Charles Palmer, you know, it's a matter of life or death. Wow. You know, so so yeah. I suppose they can be compared a bit to, um, you know, the white minority in Kenya or in Rhodesia, you know, in, in, in later times, in that they were clinging on desperately to something they thought, you know, should not be changed. And I think the English cricketers found that element on the islands even more difficult to deal with than the nationalist element and as you say don one of the key things is that they're socializing almost at all times with white people not not always but yeah. usually and truman of course i think truman himself said that uh, he celebrated his 23rd birthday during the tour and in fact got into big trouble because the wife of an mcc member got jostled in a lift in the marine hotel and Truman and Locke were blamed for this. They blamed Compton and Evans. <laughs> but um, um, they were nearly sent home for that. Swanton writes a wonderful account of the woman, you know, dressing them down like a brigadier in, in the sort of women's court. Um, so Truman, because he was a congenital swearer and because he, he sort of couldn't, couldn't but be direct, was like a sort of bomb dropped into those cocktail parties. Yeah. Uh, it's also, I mean, you may have talked to Shield about this, the interesting dynamic. Of course, the tours were so much longer. The tour matches, or what were called the colony games in the West Indies, were far more important. And on this tour, MCC pulled off an unprecedented clean sweep of the colonies, as they were called in those days. So that was a big thing. You know, that wasn't just warm-up. That, that was important. So the yeah. tours are so much longer that there is much more social activity than there would be today. And also, I think, an acceptance that on a long tour, you know, cricketers do need to let off some steam. The trouble was they let off a bit too much, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting. I was going to kind of round off by asking you if it's possible to kind of say what has changed and what has stayed the same. Um, you, you mentioned the the analogy between the books of Constantine and and um, yeah. Michael Holding. But also the the... The touring life, the life of the players. It's hard to imagine now uh, players being put in that environment where Absolutely. they haven't been media schooled to their, you know, yes. they're, they're so expert in not yes. saying anything, aren't they? Yes. And yet they're still required to comport themselves in a certain way. Yes. Yes, that's a good question. Um, I mean, in terms of the specifics of cricketers on tour, I think the main difference, as you say, is much more of a sense of media comportment, if you like. I don't think any of these players, um, and not even Palmer, would have had any, in inverted commas, media training in 53-54. Of course, the press corps, uh, the other point, of course, is there was no television. Mm. Um, so, um, and Although radio was very important, radio in the West Indies, by the way, Ball by ball commentary had occurred long before it did in 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 England. 
So in the, in the, in the West Indies radio, it was one of the very important things unifying all the different islands. But Swanton did give 15-minute summaries on the light programme of this tour. So people in England were getting some coverage. But the point I was going to make in terms of the actual dynamics of touring is that the press and the players were much closer on a day-to-day yeah, basis. Yeah. They stayed in the same hotels. Hutton actually asked after the tour if the press could be put in a different hotel <laughs> because he felt he'd been pestered at key moments of the, of the tour. But there were eight of them on tour. And although Swanton may have kept his distance in terms of being rather a snob and wanting to go to the best <laughs> party and, you know, talk to the governors on each island and so forth. You know, on a day-to-day basis, the players and press were very close. I was lucky enough to interview Alan Moss before he died, a wonderful wow, man. Yeah. And he said that although very occasionally one of the press might hide in the bushes outside the hotel to see what time the players got back, much more often they were out at the same party as the players. So you got much less sort of the stuff that happened to Botham in the West Indies in 1986, you know, wouldn't really happen. There was one journalist, actually, Ross Hall of the Daily Mirror, who did do a sort of expose of Compton and Evans for doing too much partying, although right. he didn't name them. Yeah. You know, you had to guess who they <laughs> were. Who, it, was, it was actually pretty <laughs> obvious. Who, <laughs> yes, it, actually, it couldn't have taken long. <laughs> it was actually pretty obvious who he was talking about. But so I think there's that thing where players didn't have to worry so much about being exposed for their conduct. You know, whereas I think on later tours, uh, you know, one thinks of Robin Smith in the West Indies on his last tour. You know, if if you were relaxing too much, it you know, that became more public more quickly. So I think that definitely has changed. But on the other on the other hand, you know, the actual pressure that the press puts on players, I think, is is about the same. You know, the, the sense of we talked earlier about this sense of cricket as a religion, which I think is very strong for the MCC. But this idea of cricket as war is also there, isn't it? And I think the press still, I mean, we've got this Ashes series now where, you know, both sides really want to win, you know, and it therefore does become something of a war. And of course, you can have criticism of tactics on on the English side, but the English journalists as a group, I think, do want England to win. Although they, you know, most of them try and be reasonably impartial in their reporting. So I think that hasn't changed in the sense of... of, um, what, what has changed, obviously, is that if you're conducting yourself as an army, you know, at war, uh, in the old days, um, MCC felt that an amateur, someone of the officer class should be leading that war. I mean, that's all completely gone now. So the amateur oh, yeah, professional yeah. thing, the amateur professional thing in England was a still, I think, very strong at this, at this point. And, you know, after Hutton, he retired after, the, after winning the Ashes, as you say. He basically was mentally and physically spent. And he'd, after all, achieved what he set out to achieve. He proved that a professional could do it. So once he retired, there is no, um, I think I'm right in saying, there is no professional captain of England until the distinction falls away. You know, we have May, Cowdery, Dexter, Mike Smith. The first two, incidentally, modelled their captaincy on Hutton, which is interesting. You know, that dynamic, I think, was still there on tour all the way up to the end. And even afterward, you you can read the, the differences between, I mean, I think several people have made this point. I think Derek Burley might be one of them. You know, the, the boycott Brearley thing, the Illingworth Cowdery thing, the even the Gatting Gower thing. You've yeah. still got this roundhead cavalier thing going on, haven't you? Yeah. And that gets exacerbated on tour, I think, sometimes, you know, where the boys go out for a, for a drink and maybe the amateur sometimes doesn't. You know, Peter yeah. May on this tour was, was you know, they sent him along to talk to the governor's wife and all that sort of thing, while the other yeah. boys sort of got stuck into the booze. I, yeah. if I, I'm being slightly reductive, but... <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I mean, yes, you get the sense no one's getting stuck into the booze in Australia at the moment. Well, that would be another joyless. difference. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, becomes, and, uh, it's slightly it, more, less joyless. Yeah, yes, yeah, and if yeah. you... And that, just the last point, actually, John, maybe to finish off. I mean, that's the other thing, isn't it? You know... Even on the, on the last tour of Australia, I don't know the details this time, Joe Roots you know, had a team of about 17 backroom people, you know, fitness yeah. coaches, motivational people, analysts. You know, on this tour, there was just Hutton and Palmer. They didn't even have a masseur. There wasn't even the, 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 the budget for that. You know, so there was yeah. no backup team. I think that's one of the reasons things got so difficult to manage. The next tour in Australia, Hutton had some people he really trusted on that tour. And that's one of the reasons that tour went better. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, there was no great big backup group as there would no, be. Today. No, I mean, I think, yeah, I think the next thing 
just trying to think about it. I'm pretty sure soon after that, the next thing they did introduce was a, a priest was or a minister, wasn't it? They, yeah. they, the next member of the backroom staff they gave them was a member of the clergy who they could yes. go and talk to. Well, which yes, I, I think that is right. <laughs> yeah. Um, of course, of course, they all, all, all also always like to get Shepherd on tour for that reason as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he went, didn't he, in 62. I sometimes get my years mixed up, but he went on the tour of Australia in 62, 63, I think, where again, yeah. um, it was suggested he was going to be captain. He scored a century in the last, I think the last gentleman versus players game. And the chairman of selectors, Robbins, waved, waved to him, you know, cheerfully, and then made Ted Dexter captain. Um, so, yes, I think yeah. they did. Is I think, it, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yes, I suppose that capriciousness has gone, hasn't it? That selectorial capriciousness doesn't exist in the same way that it did then, in that, you know, you would have the captaincy changing in the blink of an eye, sometimes between test matches around, certainly in the 60s, you know, as you say, you mentioned yes. Mike Smith and Cowdery were mm. interchangeable for a while and so on and so forth. But yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an amazing thing, but we should, I should end by saying, um, you know, I, I, I have to read a lot of cricket books um, and this one, uh, this year yours, who only cricket knows, one of the very, very best. It's fantastically entertaining if you think the 1950s weren't rock and roll <laughs> i advise you to go out and buy this book and read it because absolutely tremendous account of a single tour and i think it's a, a brilliant place to end our discussion on on the touring life so david woodhouse thank you very much thank you My thanks go to today's guests, Shield Berry and David Woodhouse. We were talking just as another England Ashes campaign ran aground on those mighty icebergs of Brisbane, Adelaide and Melbourne. But it's worth remembering that it's always winter somewhere and there's always another tour. The books that we've been discussing, Shield's Beyond the Boundaries and David's Who Only Cricket Know, are both published by Fairfield and they're available now from the Night Watchman website. And thanks to you for listening. If you've enjoyed it, then do spread the word. And if you're feeling especially kind, then why not leave us a review on your podcast app? To find out more about The Night Watchman, visit www.thenightwatchman.net. The Night Watchman podcast is written and hosted by John Houghton, produced and edited by James Wallace. <laughs>